Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Well, as Dave and I resumed our conversation about conversation and about social inaction and practice, we got so far into all that came to his mind and made me want to ask for more that we recorded much longer than even the most devoted listener should have to listen to in one setting. And so I'm splitting the uh, hour into two. And we'll have part one, which is this one that follows, and then part two. The point of the conversation is always to see what new insights Dave can bring to this very enticing question about how is it that we humans can do things in the moment that create us and create results at the same time. A conversation like Dave and I had, practice like podcasting, all of that happens moment to moment. So when I counted up all the moments for this conversation, I thought, hmm, there's a lot of good stuff here. So let's split it up and take it from there. So here is the first part of my conversation with my son, Dave, who's looking at how the physicist David Bohm's work contributes to our understanding of how we get ourselves working every day. I don't mean going off to earn a paycheck. I mean, just working (laughs) as in not working. So here we go. This conversation with Dave, my son, reminds me of what the purpose and theme of this entire podcast enterprise is. (laughs) Enterprise, small e, undertaking conversations probing the nature of practice. When Dave and I talk, we are also probing the nature of conversation, something he studied uh, when he was working on his doctorate and, and and after for that matter. When we look at conversation and practice, both occur, only occur in the moment, according to the thinking that Dave has brought to bear and continues to bring to bear in this conversation. Looking at this time at a physicist named David Bohm, who uh, helped us understand quantum physics, which means, therefore, we are going to be baffled. Uh, in listening to Dave, and I welcome you to it, because after baffle comes insight. So this is uh, my son, Dave. Folks, periodically, Dave and I, my son Dave and I, come back to sort of the pinpoint (laughs) of all the ways to think about practice in its socially enacted context. In fact, practice itself is likely to be socially enacted in that if you really have some fun with this, anything we say as a practice is simply our idea. I mean, yes, there are tangible things we do, but when we name those things and look at the outcomes, they're not necessarily figniks, fig leaves of our imagination, but they are thought. 
So when Dave and I talk today, we're going to talk more about thought. Last time we talked about several people who gave us some insights into how the brain works and its wondrous ways. So uh, welcome, Dave. And uh, what do you want to talk about today? Well, I know you might want to dedicate the podcast to talking about how you got the hole in one today on the golf course. And, uh, oh, that! <laughs> oh, and that the, little thing! <laughs> I know the temptation, uh, but uh, it was it was a a, a very nice moment. Thanks. <laughs> um, but the, we might talk about slightly broader issues, and um, it's a lot of what I've done in the past three podcasts we've done together. Past two, I guess, is um, especially we talked about different ways of approaching the the idea of order. And organization mm-hmm. and self-organization we talked about with um, Ilya Prigogine and then we took that into the brain with um, Harold Edelman in, neuro- mm-hmm. in neurobiology and um, this time I thought I would take it even a little more trying to find uh, go a little more deeper into those um, uh, general almost philosophical con- concepts, but ones that might expand us um, even further into a way of approaching um, social organization on one side, and then on the other side, back into the brain, perhaps a bit, and, and another way of looking at, at consciousness as a dynamic, mm-hmm. and then perhaps into quantum physics. Okay. And if All there's right. time, maybe into the possibility that the universe has has a built-in technology that does interesting things that we might get into later because um that last topic has to do with something if you cruise around um the youtube looking for interesting topics on consciousness you'll see um a number of people um come up who are philosophers um, who bring up the old idea of idealism and materialism, especially where it comes to the, to the brain um, and, and the mind that arguing in various ways that what I've been doing in the last couple of podcasts of, of getting down to the neurons and neuronal groups and trying to explain mind and consciousness at that level um, is really just um We'll never really make that connection to what philosophers call the hard problem of what what is actual consciousness that we experience, or what is what is the mind, and um, or is there something that's really just a collective mind to explain social organization? Um, and I think what we've done with the um, concept of social inaction is is to give a couple more. Um, let's call them empirical points. Mm-hmm. Things plus, you can actually see and count. Yeah. Plus a, a, a dynamic explanation that can account for certain things that, yeah, exactly. The things that can be observed. Um, and, and even now increasingly the brain can be observed, but still you see um, representations of flashing lights on a, on a screen um, for brain yeah. activity. And so we've had to kind of go into, well, what might be, underlying principles and dynamics behind that mm-hmm. that might account for what we see at these different levels. And so, um, and I think that's where um, those who 
or proponents of idealism kind of say, well, you're just working yourself into holes. Um, you'll come up with, you'll, you'll see the name, um, Bernardo Castrop. He does lots and lots of talks on idealism. There's a few uh -huh. others. There's even another kind of, um, genre to this, these talks who get into the idea that we are in a simulated universe. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that we're really in a sort of a, a computer of sorts. And you could certainly think of, uh, of the matrix uh movies yeah, as as yeah. a as an archetype of one sort of that notion but um you know they'll they'll be a little more sophisticated than that it's not necessarily you know an, an ai on earth but somehow you know some aliens or who knows what building computer simulations that we're in and some have made whole theories of everything in the sense of physics have have done um a, a guy named tom campbell is one who yeah. uses it to um explain things like psychic phenomena and, and such um yeah. and then uh, others will um have uh different ways of counting it. the 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 idea is that it's some of these strange so the the more esoteric aspects of consciousness are things that are harder to explain seem to be better explained if the universe were some computer simulation than than something that was based in um, physics, even acknowledging that we don't know everything about physics. And it also comes up when you start looking at quantum physics and all the weird things like quantum entanglement, where where particles seem to affect each other from two sides of the universe. And um, <laughs> so all of that wow. is somehow going to... <laughs> tie into social and action social action and and um my argument may end up if we get there with a kind of a why not both notion towards idealism where we're, we could talk about things that are very physical concrete material interactions uh, of, of a real universe but maybe there's something there, there is a certain problem that needs to be solved um that maybe we'll get into in the end and maybe it'll be a two-parter and that would be part two that we get into. okay because that we'll see uh, so far that you've covered a lot of ground yeah 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 so <laughs> i i would jump in to say though that i have now found out that my hole in one was done by another version of me in a different in an alternative state well there there, there are you know multiverse notions of multiverse where you i i sure felt like it was someone else because i've never hit a ball that straight and have it go right into a cup i mean yeah so, so it's got to be someone else but anyway yeah we'll, but we'll, they're we'll all you know it. <laughs> most of our versions of of physics come from watching marvel movies so we all know about the multiverse and things like yep. that and those are all stemming back to various um models of um quantum physics in particular which which around um the i think 1930s um uh and and, and on were starting to come up as ways of of um understanding the very odd observations the more we looked at how um electrons uh and particles their energy levels around around um orbiting atoms uh didn't really follow even what Einstein was coming up with, with relativity um, in quite, in, or, or certainly Newtonian physics in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, I won't go too deeply into it, but um, it's really been one of the focuses of, of uh, physics, like the, many people have heard uh, is, is uh, how electrons, for example, act like waves in one context, but particles in another. Um, 
So I'm going to talk about one physicist, uh, David Bohm, who okay. was uh, did his dissertation work um, uh, just be around the time of World War II, and I, I believe his dissertation work um, in um, was actually used to contribute somewhat to the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb, <laughs> although he was he himself was not involved, brought onto the team that that worked that up, and um, but he's in. Um, but he did a, an influential uh, work textbook on um, quantum physics at the time, um, but at that time also kind of felt uncomfortable with the idea of um, that was uh, the dominant uh, one, which is called the Heisenberg um, model, which uh, used concepts that I won't get into too much, but like basically that there's a fundamental uh, unpredictability so that you can't know the position of electron in its in its field of orbit um, until you observe it and that somehow collapses the superpositions of all possibilities in the one that's observed and and uh, there's all sorts of other aspects of it basically which start people who don't understand it very well to start thinking of um, um, various magic and and Schrodinger's cat who was put in a box and you don't know whether the little um, um, your radiation tablet has killed the cat or not until you open it up and see um, there's all these kind of different almost philosophies around that went with quantum physics at the time which has since evolved um, and uh, the the um, Heisenberg school has is, is become um, more complicated but at the time David Bohm was putting out a different a different um, version that was explaining um, quantum physics at the time. Um, it's been called a pilot wave theory or um, Bohmian mechanics, and which actually very few physicists at the time liked. So he was another one of these kind of oh, yeah. <laughs> out there marginalized guys. He's another guy on the margin. Yeah, yeah who who uh, but kept with it um, and um, with it. And you know, developed it a bit, but um, I, I think he's probably most remembered now for um, his uh, theories of um, implicate and explicate order, which I'm going to get into. Okay, I can get around to it. Um, <laughs> he's also well known for having gotten uh, um, hooked up with some of the philosophers, especially J. Krishnamurti, who's um, uh, a philosopher, kind of of Eastern philosophies, bringing a lot of those ideas to the West, uh, very mm. influential in the, um, uh, probably from the 1950s on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and if you go to YouTube, you'll see very interesting conversations with, with between them that have been put up. Um, but what I'm going to do is kind of not start with his physics, but with some of the ideas as it relates to, um, consciousness but also to the brain and then as another way into to an action and and um the when we talked about the brain as as the operation not of neurons but of neuronal groups that, right that fire and sustain each other mostly through their um, accommodation to the relevance of what was immediately around around them so that you get mm -hmm. clusters of clusters of neuronal groups that as they meet 
perturbations basically from each other, but eventually out into the real world, as they adjust, you have certain patterns that are reinforced and others that die back. Mm -hmm. And so that um, in general, the brain is made up of, of um, uh, you know, a quarter quadrillion connections that are largely groups of self-organizing uh, systems, mm -hmm. self-referencing, but able to operate to, towards the world and also become, in a sense, observers to each other as they uh, coordinate um, uh, together into um, uh, into the whole one part of which would be what we might experience at the moment, both of sensory, the sensory world, and then of the um, social world. Mm -hmm. And we talked last time about Harold Edelman's model of um, kind of two levels of consciousness, one being a, a, a first order consciousness, which is what we might share with other uh, animals Mm -hmm. where you we have this connection of um of sensory motor plus value which could be you know basically the emotions mm -hmm. um giving a relevance at any moment that mm -hmm. that emerges in yeah. a sense comes together as a certain whole that we actually experience and then the next level using the parts of the brain that evolved for, for language brings forth this the second order which which becomes an observer of the first order but also one that's using language um to experience um, what we call our conscious self the discursive self the i and the me who we can talk about but also mm -hmm. only on the basis of uh, our relationships to the social world the one that came up with language that sustains our who we are through through language and then beyond that to other levels of social organization so what we want to get at is a little bit more what this moment these little moments of consciousness are um yes. and because we often think of them as a uh like an unbroken experience like there's a movie screen we're watching the world go by and then there must be someone watching the screen mm -hmm. which is an okay metaphor in a way but if you think about how does it actually come together what david bohm used the concept of implicate order and explicate order the s exploit i'm going to trip over that word every time explicate order is um would be this would be this this realization of the of the moment of um experienced consciousness you know the feeling one would have you stub your toe you'll feel it yeah. as you're experiencing it that's what comes forth but underneath what we've been talking about especially last time with the brain is lots and lots of other things going on which are not just levels of you know levels that of organization that we aren't aware of but ones that are kind of um in a sense, enfolded in, in into what what emerges moment by moment um, as as uh, this experienced organization, and the metaphor that David Bohm uses, oddly enough, coming from quantum physics, is is um, almost like a movie screen where the sequences of moments pop up and. You're adjusting to one and then the next and then the next which isn't so it's it's as though you're watching the world go by 
as an unbroken whole, but it's much more almost a, a flickering of putting all the pieces together, one after the other, and then experiencing them as, as coherent, and then having to test that coherence in that next moment by what happens next. Yeah. Boy, uh, I got to interrupt you because mm -hmm. I think I'm actually understanding. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I think. I mean, we'll test that. The uh, explicit ha is what we call happening. You know, mm -hmm. it's awareness of happening. And then the in implicit aspect. Well, the movie screen analogy is that this we we are seeing the world come by, but we've had sort of a stop action because we've just had a moment where our emotions and other feelings kicked in. Mm -hmm. And so in an instantaneous moment, we're concentrating on the scene and we're making some sense of it. And I suspect that's where language kicks in because we can actually name, you know, what, what we're experiencing to some degree, all of that happening in a, in less than an instant yeah it? it becomes the now the experience now and yeah that's exactly right. now yeah, yeah with with the um capacity to use words and and then to become mm -hmm. sort of that observer of observing of mm -hmm. the world um it brings forth that next level of of explicate order that we described as the the observable side of that becomes what we've been calling social inaction because it has to have you can see it happen as people engage and talk and interaction. Yes. They are making themselves understood to each other. They have to adjust to you know any troubles in the performance of that order. But then they also have to they also have to point to a broader world, a world with a history, a world which there's been lots of the past memory, but also real things like writing and architecture of buildings and cultural uh, traditions all being in a way there, but not really there. Through all these, everyone interacting, they're kind of enfolded into a potential for coming out in these moments. And yet it's only these moments that, that count. Yes. Um, underscore, underscore, underscore. Yeah. A another way that um, David Bohm came at this notion was he, he, um, eventually did had some conversations, a bit of work with a neuropsychologist, Carl Prebram. Uh, I think he was a neurobiologist who did a lot of, um, early, uh, physical studies, studies of the brain, but they, they both eventually came up with a notion of a holographic brain that there's oh. a, you know, the metaphor and it, it, they, they probably took it not really having as much information as we do now about how the brain is structured. They, they probably made it more than a metaphor, but I think we can first say that the, the notion of a holograph is the idea that with the, the holograph, the hologram works by, um, if you shoot a laser, um, at a, at an object like an apple mm -hmm. and, and do it uh, coherently, um, and have it bathe the whole apple itself. And then as it bounces back, it's captured onto a, a particular, uh, glass or material that allows it to be etched in basically what you get is all the points of view of the apple etched in as information into the the holographic glass material such that when you then remove the apple and then shoot another coherent light onto that 
um, pattern, you'll get um, the visualization of basically a, th a 3D apple that kind of floats in space. And as you move your head, we've probably seen them in museums. You move, oh, yeah, once really you move your head and they, very and cool. you can see all the different angles of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you can sort of think of the brain and memory working like that. And I think we could now more precisely think of it in terms of Harold Edelman's model of, of um, neuronal groups, because it's not so much that there's a kind of an abstracted holographic notion, but there's all these multimodal parts, basically lots of points of view bouncing off whatever we encounter in the world and then getting kind of etched in to, to information, but it's information that, you know, you'll never find the little cluster of neurons that, that correspond to an apple, rather you get this rather abstract kind of fractal uh, neuronal groups that are kind of just dealing with their own um, relevance and, and mm -hmm. um, at the moment, but put together with the right kind of external stimulation coming from some relevant events that all those parts that have to do with the apple come up, including all the different sensory aspects, all the way we, all the ways we might interact with it, grabbing it, smelling it, tasting it. Um, but constrained towards what's relevant for the moment. Um, well, if the apple didn't instantly appear to have any particular relevance, it's just in the, you know, in the background or even in the foreground, that's one thing, but then the apple that's placed on the head of William Tell's son mm -hmm. in the famous, uh, uh, I think, myth, uh, that apple takes on a tremendous amount of significance in that moment for the archer, for William Tell, and for the son. Mm -hmm. So it's very big apple moment. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think we can think about... Um, the complexity of all these neuronal connections as as being something where you it, it all does almost seem like idealism because you're never really going to be able to dig in and see what all these um, connections will be for to explain how we know and experience the apple um but and, and literally they're all all those connections are unique for each person's brain mm -hmm. but they all have the the capacity or potential to kind of come come together always in these moments so mm -hmm. we're back to that what are the conditions of the ex explicate moment that might matter for what was unfolded in the past mm -hmm. into this kind of um ordering which is more like a potential like an ongoing potential of what we might do um in our interactions with the world so it kind of gives us a, mo a model of learning yes. um, and i know that we've talked about we like to come back to the notion of practice what is practice? Um, so the conjecture here is that as we develop something that that could be a practice, it is the first involves lots of this explicate work and and interactions and especially social interactions, which then become more increasingly enfolded into these more implicate potentials which can, can stay in the background and we can actually do a lot of the work without having to really dig too deep into that ordering because things kind of reduce down to their more efficient forms. 
mm-hmm. especially something like a course of action. So your golf swing, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you more or less did the same golf swing. Um, but there's always enough variation that it was just this one time in 79 years that it happened to <laughs> take the ball into, <laughs> into the hole. It was, it was incredible. And, and I'll, I'll thank boom, David boom for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I get it. I get it because, uh, it, it, for it, in that moment, you know, as, as you're fixing your eye on this ball and you look up once and see the pin, you know, some yards ahead and you get the feeling it cancels everything out, the noise of the other players on the other fairway, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just kind of using my memory of this moment, but um, it, it's, it's a, it's a great feeling if you can lock your eyes on the ball, which is what I've learned to do in the last, you know, since I've been playing this, this, this season, I've learned how to lock my eyes on the ball mm-hmm. and that has taken away all kinds of bad habits <laughs> Like and swinging to, so then it's it's an incredible instant, and that's all it is. As you feel that club coming down toward that ball on that tee, you're totally committed to that action. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can pull the club back, but really, do you do it? You just go with it, and and uh, then it click, and then up in the air it goes, and you read it, and you anticipate, maybe explicate where it's coming down, mm-hmm. and. And had it come down uh, like it usually does to me, uh, uh, short of the green or on the wrong side, I would instantly start thinking, wow, uh, what am I going to do differently the next time? So it is a very interesting kind of moment. But when it did go in the cup, I didn't believe it. I I can't see it on the green. It must be behind that hill. So when (laughs) I get up to that little hill, I looked and it was not there. So I tiptoed over to, <laughs> to the pin. And then I, I learned something, you know, that I had done it right. Um, yeah. Could I have to wait another 79 years before I could do it twice? Most likely. Yeah. Now the Heisenberg model of quantum physics would say that you didn't, that ball may or may not have been in the hole until you observed it. But <laughs> <laughs> he's a quack. Um, it's true though in 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 one way i in the ideally idealism aspect of it the the fantasy of it it, i could have gotten up there and it wouldn't have been in there and then i'd look up and it would be way over in the back of the green (laughs) right (laughs) reality would hit yeah the multiverse um uh well it's a good example um without getting too deeply into the golf stories, which could be saved for the long winter evenings. Um, exactly. it, it does give you a real sense of what, of how each swing is certainly unique. Mm-hmm. Each, all the conditions are certainly unique and, mm-hmm. um, and, um, but they, they do come from practice and, and what, you know, part of what you've made routine. And then really it's, after it's done that you that you can then reflect on on what happened so i th- i think the it kind of that we've kind of gone over the the just some um, a, a few of the aspects of where david bohm's coming in with with an idea that might apply to consciousness it applies and i think the more i read some of his books such as um uh, i think I, should have the title for me implicate order and 
wholeness. Um, he he kind of uses it as a way of pun- posing that there may be more of a that the world and perhaps the, the not just the the mind or the brain, but the the world itself kind of comes from an unbroken wholeness that is interacting with itself in various ways. Um, and uh, where we don't necessarily, we could talk a bit about how that might apply, whether or not that might be true for the physical world. I think it works well for the brain that there is a certain, that there's certainly lots of parts of the brain doing their own thing, but there's also this, this idea of this achieved uh, wholeness and even this holographic sense of, of lots of parts of the brain being able to, to, interact with each other, um, mm-hmm. including not just the neocortex, but down to the brain stem, where perhaps some of the more, where, where perhaps a lot of this primary consciousness actually comes from. I just heard a talk, I'm going to get his book, um, um, a guy, uh, a neuro uh, um, psychologist, Mark Solms, he wrote a book called The Hidden Spring, where he has some very interesting mm-hmm. examples, uh, like patients who have had their frontal lobes um, pretty much destroyed um, by by an accident or mm. disease or something, and yet still have a very clear sense of self. Or babies who are born without any cortex at all are still able to do quite a bit with um, emotions and kind of have a, a a what we might call a primary sense of of self at that mm-hmm. level, even though they don't have the social self. They, mm-hmm. they need the rest of their brain for that. So so uh, yeah. It's, it's where we then look at how this fits with social and action, I think is, is interesting. Um, that, uh, again, this, this idea that, that people engage in pocket interaction, this performance, um, brings forth these domains of relevance by which people warrant what, what just happened with, with what's being achieved at the moment for mutual understanding, but in doing so, are potentially invoking all the the implicate orders of the of the social world, as we as we mentioned before, um, both physical world or imaginary worlds, mm-hmm. and then we you know we kind of clutter the world with all the the uh, artifacts of of that activity. <laughs> that oh yeah, what we ref- refer to and 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 keep going for um, uh, you know used used to to build our our social group lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, so one question is, um, is there a sense in which this enacted social domain is, is irreducible to the brains of each participant? Because there's always a temptation to do that when you talk about social organization, that, that, um, you know, social structure, you know, the older ideas of social structure, that means there's really something out there and it's, it instructs the behaviors of individuals or becomes the constraining forces. And, and they use a lot of notions of physics and of force and, and, and right. I think you'll see that used a lot in, in the business world because they become good metaphors, but they aren't accurate metaphors at a certain level. Well, that ends the first part of our conversation. Stay tuned for part two. It will come up as the next episode in the Practice Podcast series. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, 
Listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book On Practice as a Way of Being is available now in digital form, something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us. And it's a a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world, slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you.